Welcome to the first episode of our True Colors podcast. I am Joseph Villanova, I'm a psychiatrist, and today I'm going to talk to Penny Gambling. Penny is a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, and a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. For 20 years, Penny ran the NHS Personality Disorder Unit in Leicester, and she has published several books about mental health. For instance, Intelligent Kindness, Rehabilitating the Welfare State, and more recently, Don't Turn Away, Stories of Troubled Minds in Fractured Times. Penny is now retired from the NHS, but she continues to lecture and campaign. Penny and I have worked in the same trust, and at some point she supervised me when I had to deal with some patients with personality disorder with very complex presentations. We had the chance over the years to have many discussions about the different problems facing the NHS and the psychiatric services in particular. Penny's last book, Don't Turn Away, covers her life from being a medical student to being a consultant psychiatrist eventually retiring. And during all that time, she offers many different reflections about what has gone wrong so far with NHS. I thought it would be a good way to start a podcast about mental health by talking to someone with such a wide experience. Well, Penny, we can start with the first question. And I thought we can start with a very interesting question. Uh, that would be quite, quite like a trap as a question for the first question in a podcast. The question is, what do you think makes us human? I know that is a wide philosophical question, but let's start with the big ones first, and then we're going to start with practical matters. Um, that, I think that's a great question to start with. Um, not sure I can answer it, but I'll try. I'll have a, I'll throw up a, a few thoughts. Um, I mean, I think it's a great question to start with because I think so many of us go into psychiatry or or other, other mental health professions um, because we're fascinated by that question. I mean, that was certainly true for me. Um, and I, I can remember as a medical student just, just loving um, my psychiatry placement because particularly over lunch, actually, in the days where we had lunch breaks, um, you know, we, we, there would be this, this great discussion going on about these, these, these big important questions and um, I, I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think over my career, I feel disappointed actually that we sort of lose touch with those questions. You know, what, what is, what makes life meaningful? What, what um, make, makes some people kind of get up in the morning and feel a sense of agency and want to be alive, and other people just drift through life and, and not bothered if they're alive or dead. Um, I guess we're all much more irrational than than we'd like to think we are. And um, but but what makes some of us able to hold ourselves together and other people feel very fragmented and um, eventually become psychotic? I mean, I, you know, these the, these are are fascinating questions. But I think we kind of um, as we certainly from my experience was, and and I, yeah, I guess it's partly the way mental health services are organized in these in our country and 
we have so little time now. We don't have those lunch breaks to sit back and think about these things. But um, I think if we lose touch with that, that's when psychiatry risks becoming inhumane. And obviously, um, you know, there are, there are we, we know from the history of psychiatry that, that we're always at risk of that. And I think there's something about, you know, we, we go in asking these questions, but actually what we... What we then encounter um, in some of our patients, and certainly in some of our institutions, is 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 a is a picture of kind of humanity laid bare, really, kind of at its most primitive, and and you know, at times very desperate. And I think that's that that's frightening, and that for all of us, I think that that hooks into, I guess, some really primitive fears, um, deep profound fears and and I so perhaps it's no no surprise that we we move away from those bigger questions but um yeah no I, th I think they're so important you mentioned something quite interesting humanity laid bare I guess that many of us when we came to psychiatrists we had the idea that we would find that that raw sense of being human in front of us However, you would agree that people go to see a psychiatrist for many different reasons, and those reasons have been changing over the years. What I've been noticing now, at least in my own experience as a psychiatry, that lots of people come to see us with a vague sense of unhappiness, and that unhappiness, at least in the way that I can say it, often has a social cause. It's difficult to articulated, but one thing that I've noticed is that people are broadly quite unhappy with their lives now in this world, in this society. This society that sometimes has been called late-stage capitalism, although I guess there are other ways to call it, which is a society where people live fairly isolated lives with limited degree of social support, and end up being quite unhappy and quite distressed. And sometimes then they come to psychiatry looking for a name for that distress and a solution. What are your thoughts about that? Again, that's such a big question, isn't it? And there's so many perspectives we can we can start from. Um I, I mean I guess we all sign up now to the idea that um mental health presentations have a, a, a biological, a psychological and a social base and um, I suppose and we know that I mean, actually of course if there's one, one I mean I totally agree with you that, that lives are difficult and if there's one one um, thing we could do to, to improve society, the mental health of people in society it's probably um, work away at um, inequality actually and poverty and racism and, and all those sort of social things and I suppose I bang on about that because I think over again over my career although we we all sign up to a sort of bio, bio psychosocial um, causation for, for for mental health problems I think it's the social particularly that that's been neglected over the last 40 years um, and and so I think things have got a lot more difficult for a lot more people, and 
you know, what we see in our as psychiatrists just reflects big changes in society. Um, what do you think about that need that some people have of having a diagnosis? Well, I think it's fascinating that, 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 that we're now in a situation, and I don't think this was, it was like this when I started psychiatry, but we're now in a situation where people actually come to see um, psychiatrists wanting a diagnosis. And um, that's, that's, that's a big change, isn't it? I mean, that, that, I don't think that was happening, as I say, when I started. And I, I don't think it's the same in physical medicine. I don't think, or perhaps it is, perhaps people Google their symptoms and and have decided the diagnosis before they come. But I think most, mostly, I, you know, if I, I, I might worry that I've got something, but I sort of dread having a diagnosis of diabetes or renal failure or something. And yet we see more and more people coming, kind of wanting that label. And I, I mean, perhaps it's, you know, what we're saying, actually, that lives have got so difficult that um, and complex that, that, that actually perhaps people feel they need sort of a label gives them permission to be a bit vulnerable and um or, or like a, to have a name for the distress well yes and of course that could be a good thing i don't want to i mean i i know a lot of psychiatrists are very worried about some of the the the, the new diagnoses and how many people are getting diagnosed with things like adhd and i think i mean i think we're right to worry i think as a society we should be very worried when suddenly Lots of people are presenting with similar symptoms, um, similar complaints. I mean, ADHD is a classic, isn't it? And you can sort of, it, it's its not that it's not causing people real distress, but I think if we don't look at things like um, the way we educate our children or, you know, the effects of uh, IT and on people and all those sort of things, then... then um, we're, we're, we're really mis missing important bits of, 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 of what, what's going on. Um, I, I, I can, I'll I, I mean, I've had a person, my, one of my children has a diagnosis of um, Asperger's syndrome and she was diagnosed when she was about 19. And that was massive for me. I mean, at the time I was a psychiatrist, I was, I was sort of a psychiatrist who tried not to label people, actually, if I could possibly help it. Um, and I was sceptical about, you know, um, I guess I was sceptical about the whole thing, about kind of finding labels for people that in the past would have just seemed a bit odd and eccentric and found their niche in the community, hopefully. Um, but but actually that that diagnosis for my daughter and for the family was just transforming actually in a, in a very positive way. I mean, it took a it was a huge adjustment for me um, to come to terms with it. But but it it gave us the it gave us a way of understanding her which we hadn't had before, and that's made all the difference to her life. I mean, she's now in her late thirties. Oh, you, you mean the the possibility of giving form through a label to something that before that did not have form and because that was more scary and once something has a name, you know what you're dealing with. Yes, I mean, you have to be careful that, you know, I mean, it can work the other way as well, can't it? They can work in a sort of reductionist way 
But I think certainly our experience as a family, as I say, was very positive. And um, I, 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 I mean, it's interesting because I think, um, I think I'm a psychotherapist as well as a psychiatrist. And I think the psychotherapy community have taken on board this sort of um, neurodiverse um, diagnoses, Asperger's and ADHD and so on, perhaps more than psychiatrists have in a way, because I think actually perhaps just because we have more time, we can actually they it can it can be a way into really interesting conversations about people thinking about their mind thinking about their brain thinking about how they're different from other people or or the same as other people and those i think those conversations can be so helpful um so i i, I think i've given you a rather muddled answer a lot of different perspectives very interesting answer if you don't mind keep talking about diagnosis. This is a, a subject that has always worried me. It's always been one of my obsessions, the different ways to diagnose um, personal distress. I always had a problem in using categories to diagnose some part of the human experience that I don't think fit well into categories. If our listeners don't know much what we are talking about, a diagnostic category is like a box with a list of symptoms. And if a person has the symptoms in that list, it's put into that box. That aids communication and aids research, but also simplifies sometimes the distrust of that person. And that happens sometimes because one person's distress can fit in many boxes, and some people's distress don't fit in any box particularly and trying to fit something that is quite broad, moving, and changeable into a clear street box simplifies things. And that's a thing is more of a problem in some conditions like personal disorders than in some others. What are you people about that? It, it, it comes out of the tension of um, coming from the medical model, doesn't it? Um, and a psychiatrist being a medical profession, um, and you know, it, it, um, in lots of ways, we wouldn't we would know much less about things like schizophrenia and 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 bipolar disorder if we hadn't done that. And when I started psychiatry um, in the early eighties, um, when there was a very big move to be very rigorous about, for example, the diagnosis of schizophrenia, so we were all trained in 10 first rank symptoms and um, that was seen as very important and if you think about that you know the, the background of that was abuses of um, experts and diagnoses in um, in some countries like the Soviet Union where where um, there was suspicion anyway that that, that um, psychiatric diagnoses were being used for political reasons um, and then in the West, there was, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. There were those experiments with psychologists pretending to be patients and getting admitted to asylums and then not being able to get out. So it was very important that we um, didn't overuse labels like schizophrenia. Um, and, of course, you mentioned research. And, and it, it, you know, in order to do research, we have to know that we're talking about the same group of patients. Um, so having strict criteria... Um, was really important um, 
and and that's you know that that's given us some sort of evidence base for for helping to treat people. So I I I I, I mean I I don't think we can kind of get discard the medical model. Having said that, I mean I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying about people not necessarily fitting into these boxes. I mean, some people do, of course. I mean, even with personality disorder, which I think is extremely damning, kind of stigmatising label, even with that disorder, I encountered patients who were very relieved to read about the criteria for emotionally unstable personality disorder particularly, because I think it 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 made them feel they weren't on their own, that they were other people around with similar problems and... Um, I, I guess that gave them hope that they could be understood and, and, and helped. Um, yeah. Talking about the stigma and diagnosis, there is something that I've also noticed, which is that over the years that I've been a psychiatrist, some diagnoses are becoming less popular and some new diagnoses are coming up. And I feel that sometimes that may happen because some of the older diagnoses are associated with a degree of a stigma that sometimes may be avoided by finding a different name or a different diagnosis. One of the things they notice is that, for instance, now many people are coming up with a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the things that I notice is that at least some of these people in the past could have ended up with a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder. And I felt that sometimes a change of diagnosis happens because of a need to have a label with a lower degree of stigma. What do you think? Um, well, I mean, even if that's right, that's, that seems to progress to me. Um, although sometimes if it's just a, a linguistic change, I mean, so learning disability, for example, is it intellectual disability these days? That, that does seem mostly um, a, a, a language change, and I'm not sure it's going to make very much difference to how people see that group of people. Um, I like the term complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and I used it, I think, almost from from the start, actually. And it, it, it just seemed to fit so many of the people that were being referred to the personality disorder unit. So many of them had profound trauma in their in in their childhoods um I, I i know what you're getting at that it you know we shouldn't assume that everybody who who presents with with um symptoms that would lead them to be referred to a personality disorder unit we shouldn't be automatically assuming that they've that, um that those symptoms are are, 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 are caused by trauma in their backgrounds on the other hand you can never rule that out I mean I think you know we know now there's we know now that I mean for example sexual abuse and so many of the um the the, the people that came to that unit had been sexually abused but we we know that um people sexually abuse babies and toddlers I mean it, it's 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 always shocking and extraordinary isn't it that we you know there's there's, there's hard evidence for that um, and obviously, you know, people who are abused at a very young age, and I've I've worked with a lot of people who started to be abused. You know, they can't remember a time before they were abused. So they, they, they um, but I, you know, even people who can't remember, 
being traumatised. It doesn't mean they weren't traumatised at an age where they can't remember. So I don't think we can rule that out either. But I, I absolutely, you know, it's it, it's a it's it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? And I think the 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 search for um, the right label and the kindest label. I think you know, so often complex post traumatic stress disorder is a much kinder, more empathic, understanding label than than personality disorder. So I think that search um, is right, but I don't think we should ever do it just because it's you know um, I don't know. We want we want to avoid stigma. Well, we did mention the label sometimes have the purpose of helping people to understand their distress better. Then if a new label fulfills that need better than an old one, why not? Maybe would think. The wolf don't turn away. You talk a lot about your career being a consultant in a personality disorder unit. Um, there have been some very significant changes in how personality disorders have been treated over the years. And I believe that some of these changes have not been for the best. I also believe that some of these changes sometimes have happened because of financial reasons, post-related reasons. S someone with a complex condition like a personality disorder could be treated with an expensive individual therapy, could be treated in a therapeutic community, could be treated as a part of a group, or could be treated with a therapy that is now more commonly used or more well-known called dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. Those are very different ways to treat a similar condition. And you really mentioned your experience in developing something quite unique, which is a therapeutic humidity. Can you tell us more about that? Um. I, I, I just deal with the financial aspect first because I think we have to think very differently about the way we um, finance mental health service. And you know, when you're, I, I spent my career working mostly with young adults who had had absolutely appalling, destructive, difficult childhoods, um, and. The idea that this could be, you know, they could be put right with something quick and easy and inexpensive is an absolute nonsense. And we have to start thinking about um, spending on mental health as investing in the future, particularly, of course, with children and, and, and young adults. Um, and of course, I mean, actually, there was there was lots of evidence that 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 therapeutic communities were cost effective. And we did a study, for example, in Leicester. Um, looking at the cost um, to just to the NHS of um, the, the, um, the the people that came into the, the therapeutic community, we costed the three years um, before they came into us, and then um, showed that there was a huge reduction afterwards. So that um, and concluded that therapeutic communities actually pay for themselves in the um, medium to long term. Uh, Perhaps I should say a little bit about therapeutic communities because not a lot of people get an experience of that in their training anymore. The idea of therapeutic communities came um, started after the Second World War when there were a huge number of people coming back from the armed forces um, with, I think it was called battle neurosis in those days, it would be PTSD now, um, 
and not nearly enough psychiatrists to treat them. So someone had the bright idea of putting them in groups and uh, um, encouraging them to help each other. And that that grew into kind of um, a, a kind of living learning experience so that people formed communities uh, which um, involved some group therapy, but also a living learning experience where people um, were interacting, doing the the shopping and the cooking and the cleaning and the uh, and the organising the groups. And there was a significant degree of democracy to, deliberately in order that people um, didn't become dependent on um, professionals, but actually um, had a had a, had a large say over how the community. Ran. So there were these two um, parallel aspects to the therapeutic community, the, 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 the democratic kind of um, lot, a lot of voting, for example, um, and also the, the psychoanalytic group therapy where people were encouraged to sort of step back and examine um, what was going on in, in, in the, in the, um, the, you know, the 24-7, very intense living environment. And uh, you can probably tell already I'm very passionate about this model. Like, I kind of felt I, I, it was a huge privilege to work in, in um, and, and see so much change in people, actually. I mean, of course, not everybody could hack it, but a, a, a significant group made, 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 huge changes to their life which which made all the difference to them so i'm so i am very passionate about that model i mean i think other models dialectical behavioral therapy and so on have a lot to say for them as well but i would be very wary of of um models that that that, that push the idea that this can be done quickly and, and cheaply what's so special about therapeutic communities what do they have that make them different or make them more interesting? I think one of the things we have to do in mental health is instill hope. Um, and you know, because people often, when we first meet people, they're often very despairing and uh, can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And I think there was something absolutely built into the therapeutic community model, which made the peer group so important to them. So you know, arriving in a group setting and working with people who were um, suicidal, cutting themselves really badly, taking drugs, whatever, six months previously, and have now moved on from that. And I'm speaking quite positively about those changes. That can be enormously helpful and probably more helpful than just meeting a, a single therapist. So I think that that was really important. I think... Um, I, I, one thing that I think is really important, and I think we've lost touch of it a bit within psychiatry, is a, a positive um, perspective on crisis. I think we're so worried about risk now that our tendency is to sort of feel like we're firefighters and we've got to go into a crisis and get out the hose and sort of put the fire out. And actually, crisis is always an opportunity, and I think there's... There's, um, there's some languages where the word crisis actually conveys opportunity. It doesn't do that in English, but I think it's a really important aspect. Um, you know, crisis means that the, 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 the status quo is, is, needs to change. And I, and I think so often we, we um, 
tend to 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 work in psychiatry as if the you know we put out the fire and then the status quo can kind of we can get back to normal well no we can't because the crisis emerges because things are out of balance things aren't fitting right um and i think we need to rescue that so the whole therapeutic community um was based around the idea that there would be crises and in fact we had this the, the, um one of the it always sounded crazy when when people first came but we so we'd have community meetings at the beginning and end of each day but there was also um the opportunity to cause a, a caller a crisis meeting in the middle of the night so everyone would have to get out of bed and somebody would be feeling very suicidal or somebody would be discovered with razors or whatever and and that there'd be a crisis meeting um but but i think that you know that that there was something terribly important about that to to um, recognise the sort of um, the, the the crisis was an opportunity and things could be worked through and 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 um, would make sense in retrospect. Um, and the other thing that therapeutic communities embody is the importance of relationships and of course in the therapeutic community that's a bit different because you're you know you you spend a lot of the the time in a in a a median or large group so a group of 24 30 whatever um so there's a but there's something very containing and holding about that and um it, like you know that, that, so for example if you you're you're in crisis if you're you've had a i don't know a terrible phone call with your ex-partner and that's made you want to cut and you've gone out and bought some razor blades if you're in a group setting um you'll have people in the group being very empathic about the conversation you just had with your ex-partner and how difficult and horrible he is and then you'll have other people kind of get a bit cross with you because you've bought the razor blades um and other people being very pragmatic and suggesting what you might do so you've got all that within the group and i think that's quite difficult um to contain within uh, a one-to-one -one relationship sometimes and i think you know generally if there's any message from what i'm saying today it's actually that relationships have got to be at the heart of what we do in mental health services and if we lose touch with that then we've we've really lost something profound another change that we've seen over the last few years is the availability of therapy in primary care. That has been done using a model called Improvement Access to Psychological Therapies, which sometimes is shortened as IAPT, which means that Improving Access to Psychological Therapies in Primary Care. When the program started, I felt quite hopeful that that would be a very interesting thing to, to do, but I've been quite disappointed in the way that this program has been implemented. Um, and that happens because the way that it's been implemented is through a very narrowly conceived form of CBT for everybody, which I think tends to simplify a lot what is meant to treat. So we're not explaining it well, but I'm sure you, could, you should be able to tell us more what you think about that. Well, I, I, I mean, I think the idea of um, psychological therapies in primary care, so therapy for people close to their homes without the stigma of being um, referred and the bureaucracy of being referred on to secondary services 
is of course an important one and I th I was very excited about it when it started and it um the vision for it um w was actually ambitious and um but it's it it got diluted so I mean even before I mean before the the, the service had opened they they they'd taken out out a lot of what I think um, was it was exciting and promising I, I I should say I think there are places um not in Leicester but in it, I think some places I act services do um still offer a, a, a some sort of choice of therapy but I I mean they don't in Leicester they just they just offer a very basic form of CBT and I think that's a disgrace, actually, in the 20, 21st century. I mean, we, we, we've made so much progress. Um, uh, and we're, we're, we know so much more about different types of therapy and how we can match those to different individuals and the problems that they present with. And we're not even trying to do that. Um, you know, everything is kept... Well, I say everything is kept simple. Of course, the other problem with IAPT is, is that they're absolutely weighed under with bureaucracy. And um, certainly the, the therapists I speak to just talk about, you know, spending at least half their time accounting for what they're doing rather than actually helping the patient. Um, so I think, yes, we've got to be less afraid of complexity. I think we've got a lot of evidence now that helps us think about what's the right therapy for this particular patient. And again, I mean, if we, if we, you know, we, we, the argument that we save money by kind of providing a basic therapy for everybody and then waiting for them to fail at that before we refer them on to something more sophisticated is just actually so wasteful in the longer term and um, we need to be thinking about getting people to the right therapy the first time we see them. And um, so, yes. And also being less afraid of risk. Well, I think, I mean, I think what's happened is, um, as with so many things in mental health at the moment, everybody is overwhelmed and there's a huge... Um, focus on on exclusion criteria and I, I I've I've written a lot about that in my book I just think we've become um and, and I don't yes, I don't mean everybody and I don't particularly blame individuals I blame the system although I think a lot of individuals have internalized um exclusion as 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 a way of kind of um controlling their workload so in the book for example I, I think you're probably referring to a story I tell in the book about a, um, a a young man who I eventually picked up in my my private practice actually um, but he'd been referred to IAPT and had been excluded from IAPT because he admitted that he'd um, asked if he was violent he'd admitted to he'd once chucked his phone and broken it um, and so he was excluded from IAPT on the grounds that he was violent. And then because he didn't have enough criteria for secondary care, he was excluded from secondary care and ended up with nothing. So, um, yes, I think that's, 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 that's an issue we all need to be aware of that I, you know, as, as, and, and, and it's not just that we exclude people, but we find ways of sort of blaming the patient for not fitting into our services. 
whereas we should be doing absolutely the opposite. We should be meeting patients where they are, where they're at, welcoming them into a service and then tailoring um, the, the right sort of therapy and interventions. You mentioned that you are talking to a lot of junior doctors. And one of the things that I've noticed since my time as a junior doctor until I moved up went for the NHS is how much of our time as a doctors is being taken by fulfilling the requirements given to us by our managers. Some of them are related to fill out an incredibly high number of forms, which in my opinion are largely useless. And I think there is some uh, research backing that up and it's something that I've discussed with other psychiatrists. It seems to me that maybe it's the fear of having to face risk or maybe it's just the structure of the NHS. But the doctors seem to be busy and managing risk in a way that is possibly unmanageable rather than following their own instincts and how to treat the patients. Do you feel that the NHS as it's structured now maybe it is empowering doctors? If this is not a too leading question. <laughs> that that's 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 quite a strong way to put it, but I think yes, I mean I think the the um I mean when I was a junior doctor, um obviously you were you, you know, you were a junior in the team, so you were very much kind of do what you were told but you looked up to you kind of dreamt of the day that you would become the consultant and have much more of a free hand and um yeah could really do some more creative things and 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 that my, my, my sort of the people i remember as 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 sort of valued mentors by people who'd done extraordinary things off their own initiative and and were able to do that and um you know, if we were freed up as psychiatrists and, and doctors more generally to kind of use our initiative, and I think so many of us are driven to want to improve the system, and it's tragic that actually that there's so many things in the system that 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 stop you doing that, and I I I I kind of. I remember when I left the NHS sort of sorting out my filing cabinets and there were just files full of um, kind of projects and new ideas and um, business plans for new things. And probably the amount of time I spent on them as a clinical director um, and some, you know, they were, they, they hardly ever came to fruition. It was so difficult to actually and um, actualize the, the the ideas we'd had. Um, and those that did come to fruition, I mean, I've, for example, I was really proud of setting up a, a managed clinical network, which I think for something like personality disorder is really important. So we'd have, um, we put on lots of training and we'd have multi-agency um, meetings once a month and, um, you know, with social services and housing and probation and all the people that, um, the, the the agencies were important in the lives of our patients, and I think that was really important. We had some really good initiatives. We started working with Sure Start, who were with the um, parents, the mothers usually of of difficult to engage 
families where there were worries about the children and that seemed a really important thing that you know sort of investing energy in the in in, in the new generation and um but of course as soon as um the financial situation changed um and suddenly money became short again that was those are the first things to go because everybody narrows down and just 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 the kind of bare minimum in order to survive and that's I mean, there's something very, very disempowering in that because it's, it, you know, we're kind of being put into a slot and forced to work in a way that wasn't why we went into mental health in the first place. Could it be, or at least that's in the way that they see it, that when a system sees itself as failing, as I honestly believe the NHS psychiatric services are at the moment, they try to concentrate in protecting themselves from criticism. And the way that they can protect themselves from criticism is, is also my own way, my own view, is by digging as many boxes as possible. And possibly we are moving from a system of care that was based on building a therapeutic relationship, and that therapeutic relationship being curative, to a system that is so busy in its self-protection that seems to be spending a large proportion of their time ticking boxes in a protective way which does not have the in how can I put it? Let me rephrase it a bit. That does not have the best interests of the patient in mind. Well there's a case in the news at the moment, isn't there, about a twelve year old girl who is I think she spent three weeks in a seclusion room without a window and um, described as, as as worse than the prison cell. Um, and it's no, nobody kind of no the psychiatrists don't can't can't agree what 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 the diagnosis is and and where she should be treated. And the 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 article I was reading was the report from the judge who was just clearly I mean outraged and bemused and. At the sort of lack of urgency, actually, this twelve-year-old girl who was making suicide attempts and harming herself, and you know, a meeting had been set for two weeks' time or something to discuss it further, and the <laughs> the judge was just so appalled by this, and you kind of think, how have we got to this state where we're? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it just, I mean, it seemed a very extreme example, but I mean, as you know, it's it, the, the result was like this. All the time now, I've seen many health. Yeah, and I think that the reason is what we discussed before. I guess like that is full of risks. The system is risk averse because as I want to be criticised, once the patient is locked in a room with on windows, the risk of it stopped. Then with that, the urgency stops. Obviously, what would be in the best interest of a patient is to assume some risk and allow this patient to live in a way that is riskier, but more empowering for the patient, with the hope, with the correct amount of help, that this patient would overcome her distress eventually. But that cannot happen if no one assumes some risk, and mostly if no one assumes uh, the responsibility of managing that patient's distress in the community. And that, I mean, that this kind of attitude to risk has been sort of creeping up over the 
I, I'd say the whole 40 years of my career, really. But it's got to the stage, and this, I mean, the, the article I was reading described the conditions this girl's been put in as, as kind of infringing her basic human rights and, and, and European human rights legislation. So we're in that terrible, terrible mess with it all. And I, yes, I mean, we've got to go back to an understanding that, that um, working in mental health means working with therapeutic risk that we've got to you know and that's that's partly about seeing the long term rather than the short term um and it's yeah we've got to again we've, we've and we've got to start believing again I'm I know I'm repeating myself but re believing again in the the healing power of having a proper relationship with the patient indeed <laughs> then it seems that Sometimes the more risk we take away from the patient, the worse we make the situation for that patient. How could that be? Well, I guess I, I think the concept of um, malignant regression is helpful. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I mean, there's huge pressure on us as psychiatrists to take responsibility for someone who is in danger of harming themselves or, or ending their life. And um, I mean, that's got worse. That pressure has got worse and worse over my career. Um, and it's it, it, it's it's a hard one to explain to outsiders, isn't it? Because if somebody is cutting themselves up, you know, it, it, it's clear that um, we come in as psychiatrists and have some responsibilities to stop them doing that. But if we only focus on the short term, um, the more we take responsibility for another person or take responsibility away from them, they've left left with no sense of agency at all. So they've got nothing to live for. So paradoxically, they were, were actually forcing them to be more focused on harming themselves and ending their life. And then you get this horrible, vicious circle that it's very difficult to break, particularly if you've got a wider system that is only too quick to sort of jump in and blame mental health professionals when 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 things go badly so i think it's it it's it's a it's a really really difficult one but i would say that we're managing it um it it, it it's even more difficult to manage it well than it was um when i started as a psychiatrist reading your book one can have an idea of how much psychiatry has changed over the last 40 years, that's a long period of time on a very different conception of psychiatry. I guess all things have improved considerably, and although some may not have gone so well, what's your overall sense of how much psychiatry has progressed over all these 40 years? Well, I started psychiatry in 1982. Um, I started it in um, the, one of the two asylums in Leicester, a place called the Towers, um, which housed 600 patients, many of them on backwards. These are the chronic patients, who many of them who'd been there for decades and had been originally admitted for, for reasons like having an illegitimate pregnancy or being gay or or often the, the notes were so scanty that it was, it was um, hard to know whether someone had had a, a kind of legitimate um, mental illness originally or not. But anyway, decades later, there they were and very institutionalised. And there were 
I mean, I, I, I was utterly miserable, actually, that first six months. I, I felt I was working in a, a very inhumane institution. Of course, there were there were staff there who were, um, you know, the, 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 the managing little bits of the institution that, that, that were much more progressive. And, um, but, but generally speaking, it was an institution that was... Everything was about um, making life easy for the institution and easy for the staff. So, for example, tea would be served in these huge kettles um, with the milk and sugar already mixed in. Um, and, and that was shocking even for the 1980s. Um, the, the, the last meal of the day was served at 4.30 and then people were given a mug of Ovaltine at 7 and given... Um, a heavy dose of sleeping tablets and, and, and so that they'd sleep through the night um, and and you know, dressed in the same clothes it, 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 I mean at, at the best infantilized um, and at the worst severely dehumanized and 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 not treated as individuals well at least all these things got improved considerably but well, is there anything else that hasn't gone so well? <laughs> well, I mean, I the the, the redeeming feature of that um, first six months was that there was a new mental health act, so there was lots of discussion about that, and that was clearly seen as progress. And of course, there was this vision of community psychiatry, which lots of us were very excited about, and it felt like we were sort of on the right side of history, and we, you know, we would spend our careers kind of making progress in that direction so the idea of community psychiatry where you treated people as close to their homes as possible and you you worked with them to um, build and retain community networks and avoided the stigma of, of being admitted to somewhere like the towers um, seemed very exciting and the way forward and for a few years I think there was a lot of progress made and I, I, I remember those years very fondly. I mean, it, it, there were still things I, I, I um, felt bad about, and, and, and um, you know, there was a lot of progress to make. But generally, there was a, a I think, a, a sense of excitement and um, creativity. The wards I remember on the the new unit at the general hospital. Um, yeah, they were brightly. I can remember sort of putting Christmas decorations up with the patients, and you know, that just being a load of fun, actually. And there were lots of um, occupational therapists on the ward. There was a very buzzy day hospital with, um, and and most of the patients on the ward actually went to the day hospital during the day and were involved in cookery groups or whatever. Um, and then, a, and, and and a much better system of kind of following through patients after they'd left the ward, so they'd come back to the day hospital, and that seemed a real bridge. So, um, but uh, you know, all those things like day hospitals. I, I, I mean, as soon as money got scarce, um, those sort of things were the first to go. Um, yeah, they have gone for a long time. I still remember them. Then maybe we've lost that sense of hope or that sense of being all together doing something that matters. And now we are lost in something that is more bureaucratic and more risk averse and certainly more devoid of hope. 
Well, to, I mean, to be fair, there were the, the I think the recovery movement, um, I think it was exploited, actually. I don't think it was people in the recovery movement that were, that turned against day hospitals. But there was a an idea around that um, we were creating a group of patients that had a sort of chronic, um, creating sort of career psychiatric patients in the community. Um, but I, I think, like all these things, a lot of the um, closures were, were, were financial and, and um, you know, reasons were found to rationalise it, but that actually it was, it was all about saving money. And, of course, you know, community psychiatry happened just at the time when uh, Margaret Thatcher was talking about there being no such thing as society. So, you know, all that we kind of associated with community was also being eroded. So I think I'd say, I, uh, and, and I think my book um, paints a picture of a sort of arc, really, starting in those asylums and then ending up where we're at now, which, as we've been talking about, I think is, um, I, think, I think mental health services are in a pretty desperate state again. And I think the, 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 the culture of exclusion, which... We, we talked about a bit with your last question. I think, I mean, again, that is, you know, I think when things get hard, staff understandably become internalised some of the, the the values, but understandably become very self-protective. And, and so, so that sort of links what's going on now with, with, with what was going on when I started back in the 80s. Well, that's quite pessimistic, but... <laughs> Before we finish, let's finish on a more positive note. Do you think there are any reasons to be hopeful? <laughs> yes, I think there are always reasons to be hopeful. And uh, um, I think, um, I think, I, I mean, mental health is always fascinating. And, and I think um, I, I, I've very rarely been bored in my career. I've always found it interesting and continue to find it interesting. And I think um, because it's so interesting, we continue to attract young people who um, come into it full of curiosity, full of a, um, a, a desire to make a difference. And I think, you know, as, as, as long as we've got young people um, interested in the mental health professions um, coming in with enthusiasm and an open mind, I, mean, I think that's a reason to be hopeful. I think, as I've said, I think we know an awful lot more than we did um, 40 years ago. Actually, particularly, I, I mean, lots of things, of course, but my, my particular field, but I, particularly about about therapy. And, and as I said, I think we're, we, we, you know, we, we could do so much more matching people to the right sort of um, therapeutic interventions than we, than we, than we do at the moment. Well, this is going to be an interesting way to end my first podcast, a podcast about mental health with mental health professionals. Do you think that there is now more interest in mental health? Yes, and I should have said that as another reason to be hopeful, I think, because I think um, that the, the, the people are generally more interested in mental health. I think there's an understanding. I think, as I've, I think we've mentioned earlier young people particularly are more comfortable talking about mental health and their emotions um and i think 
generally speaking, there's a sense that mental health is something that um, affects us all. Um, and of course it affects us all. And I, and, and I think, you know, the more we can encourage people to think about their mental health, but also the, men, you know, what, what, how we can organize our schools and our work environments um, to, to promote um, mental health, um, that, that's all for the good. So I think, yes, that's, the, that's a good point to end on. And I, I do feel hopeful about that. Do you think that we have been a bit too pessimistic? <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you've asked that, actually, because I'm worrying that we've been too critical, and I think I need to watch that, particularly as I'm sort of very much semi-retired and on the edge of the um, the, the system now. Um, I, 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 and I want to make it absolutely clear that I have the greatest respect for lots of younger psychiatrists that I know and other mental health professionals who are just working against all the odds really to to make things better for their patients um but i i think i stick to this in a moment stick to my stance that actually mental health services in this country are in a terrible state and in a shocking state i mean we are still despite all our um recent political problems we are still one of the richer countries in the world and i think we could just be doing um doing things so much better um and i mean i guess one of the things i i, I i'm 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 so i'm 65 um i feel i have lots of energy and um and i know lots of people my sort of peer group who've um taken retirement often you know in their 50s um who still have so much to offer so i think if we no, and I think that's just one aspect of that, that re reflects very badly on the system. If you can't retain experienced staff, um, that, that that's that's a real problem. So I, I, as I, I'm not. I mean, I think as I say, there's 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 always reasons to be hopeful, and I, um, I think, um, but, but 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 we need to get out of this mess we're in at the moment, and it's such a shame, as I said earlier, because we we. We could be doing it so much better. I mean, we we you know we've moved past that awful sort of nature nurture kind of polarization that that that, that, that was around in the eighties and and you know that I mean the, the, there's there's fascinating new areas of research that 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 link up the the biological and the the psychosocial and I and I I, I think that's that's the way forward and um, yeah. Uh, let, let, let's hope there are better years to come. Indeed. Well then, if you're still interested in psychiatry after hearing this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you want me to talk in the future. I'm quite happy to talk to any mental health professional with interesting things to say. And just to finish, if you are really interested in what you've heard, you could as well read the last book that Penny has written which is her memoirs, and, and it's called Don't Turn Away, Stories of Troubled Minds in Fractured Times, which I'm sure is available in your preferred bookshop, Brian Bowen, in the High Street online. And with that, we can finish for today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. It was um, 
Interesting conversation. Indeed. Quite polemical, but that's good for our podcast. See you then in the next podcast whenever it happens.